Hi and welcome to the second episode of Sluts and Giggles. Hopefully welcome back. Yeah, thank you for coming back. Obviously if you're listening you did and thank you. Yeah, we're quite excited because we just launched our first episode and it was good. Yeah, watching the downloads move up and stuff, it's (laughs) like... Oh, it's yeah. real. Yeah, I can't believe it's real. Um, we are on Spotify, not Spotify yet, not Spotify and iTunes. We're still waiting for validation from them. But we're on SoundCloud and Podbean just now. Hopefully in the next few days we'll be up and running on Spotify and iTunes. Yeah. Yeah. So... By the way, my name's Fiona. My name's Jade. Just in case you are new. Jade's the one with the Glasgow accent. Fiona's the one with the Edinburgh accent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Edinburgh via our broth. Yeah. So this week has been a little bit mental, really. One of our favourite people is currently in labour. Yay! Go Kayla! Baby <laughs> Squatch. Good luck! <laughs> Josh. <clears throat> oh man, Josh. He's another good friend. He lives 15 minutes or so away from the Thousand Oaks shooting, which is now... There's also a wildfire going around, uh, burning around the same area. Yeah. So I've been checking in on him all day. He's probably sick of me, so sorry, Josh. (laughs) Yeah. um, Oh, and kittens. Kittens, yeah, you've got... Kittens. Yes, he got kittens. They're so cute. <laughs> yeah, um, my husband came home this morning and got us food, <laughs> which was ever so nice of him. Um, and of course, I've been staying through in Glasgow the past couple of days, so that's been interesting. Yep, lots of presents. Lots of wine. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm on the wine tonight, so I apologise in advance. Yeah, but- to celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so this episode will be two weeks from today, which is Friday the, the 9th of November. Yeah, so two weeks just now, every two weeks, because obviously we're not sure how it's going to go. And if we get more into the swing of things, we'll do, be doing it weekly. Also, the travel aspect is a bit difficult. Yeah, so we have to be available. I have to be able to come through to Edinburgh and have somebody to look after the demons. Bring the demons. <laughs> oh, I would not fancy taking Kez in the train. She's a little rocket. True. Yeah. Nancy's... Nancy would be chill. Yeah, she's so chill. Uh, yeah, so that's something we're going to try and do. So shall we get started? Yep, yeah, you're going first this time. <laughs> yeah, so this... Oh, before I go into it, actually, I want to correct my correction from the first episode. <laughs> the Union of the Crowns was in 1603. The Union of the Parliaments was 1707. So, yeah. <laughs> but today, I'm going to be talking about William Henry Burry, who was born 25th of May in 1859 in Stourbridge, down in England. Now, I know we're a Scottish podcast. Scotland comes into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He was the youngest of four kids and his father, Henry, was a fishmonger who died when William was about six months old and then his mum was institutionalised just a few weeks later. So he and his two remaining siblings, one of them already having passed, went to live with, depending on sources, their uncle in Dudley or a wealthy woman in Wolverhampton. Um, they, they were well educated, but 
he, uh, William didn't really care much for the work ethic. A bit of a theme yeah. here. He had various different jobs and usually he was dismissed for theft or for failing to pay back loans and things like that. In October 1887, he moved to London and found employment selling sawdust for a man named James Martin. So this meant he would be going to bars and providing them with sawdust to keep the floor. Not the chef, James Martin. No, not the (laughs) chef. This is a bit before his time, I think. Well, they were patrons of William. He also patronised them. Okay. Um, He frequented bars and brothels in the Whitechapel area. Yeah. And in one particular brothel, he met a skivvy, um, a servant, who may also have been a prostitute. But um, she came from quite a well-off London family, and within a month, the two were married. They got married on Easter Sunday, 2nd of April in 1888. Now, at this time, Burry had once again been fired for unpaid debts, but Ellen had received a significant inheritance for the time. She had been given six £100 shares in a railway company from her maiden aunt. Lucky bitch. Uh, So she was really well off for the time. I mean, a couple of pennies could get you in for a night in a a, a pub. So she cashed one of these cheques and paid off William's debt and he was rehired. And the rest of the shares quickly were sold off and pretty much squandered on jewellery and a horse and cart for the sawdust business. Within seven months, the money was mostly gone and William had to sell his horse and cart. Um, Now, I said this would end up in Scotland. It wound up, the couple arrived in Dundee, which is close. (laughs) Dundee. (laughs) City of discovery, I'll have you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on the 20th or the 21st of January some sources say it was the morning some it was night doesn't really matter in 1888 because William claimed that he'd found employment for the two of them in a jute mill in the city they lived for a week in Union Street before they moved again to 113 Princes Street and apparently Ellen then gained employment at a mill but quit after the day as you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> William quickly became a regular down in local pubs, drinking frequently and heavily, often with a new friend, David Walker. And on the 4th of February, William went out for the day, first stopping in at a grocery to purchase a length of rope and then went on to watch proceedings at Dundee Sheriff Court, which he did again on the 7th of February. <coughs> was that their entertainment? Oh yeah, it was a wild time. Yeah. On the 10th of February, William visited Wa- William visited Walker, who mentioned the suicide of a local woman by hanging. He passed William the newspaper to show, the- to show him the story so he could read it for himself, and jokingly asked William to see if there was any news of Jack the Ripper, given it was just a few months after the Whitechapel murders. Yeah. And upon hearing the mention of Jack the Ripper... William gets really flustered and throws down the newspaper and leaves the flat. That same evening, William decided he was going to go for a walk with a very specific destination in mind. 
he went to the local police station on Bell Street, which is still there, and he demanded to speak to someone immediately. Now, Lieutenant James Parr was tasked with speaking to William, who reported a rather interesting story. He said that a few days prior, he and Ellen had been drinking heavily at home and the two of them had passed out. And upon waking up, William said he'd found his wife's dead body lying on the floor with a rope around her neck, apparently having strangled herself. And rather than calling a doctor or police or whoever, William had decided it would be best to take a knife to his dead wife's body, <laughs> though he claims he couldn't say why. And then he concealed her inside a packing crate that they'd used when they'd moved up to Whitechapel. Mm -hmm. So he claimed that he'd been growing concerned about the situation and he was afraid that he would be arrested for Ellen's death and that, due to the similarities, he might be accused of being Jack the Ripper. Yeah. So, usually this sort of story, Parr would be like, nah, you're just mental, and would have brushed off the story. Something sort of didn't sit quite right with Parr, and he decided, I'm going to take this a bit higher. So they went to the head detective in the station, and William retold the story, this time omitting the Jack the Ripper comment. Mm -hmm. So, after this second retelling, they th decided that they should probably go and have a look. So, William's keys and a small knife were taken from him at pending investigation, and Lieutenant Lamb, along with a detective constable, Peter Campbell, went to William's home to see if the story had any merit. Now, upon arriving at 113 Princes Street, they descended the steps to the basement flat where they were met with an odd smell. There was the odour of stale alcohol <laughs> <laughs> and something else they couldn't immediately identify. If you ask me, that just sounds like going to the A hive. <laughs> going to the hive in Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah, pretty much smells like Glasgow. <laughs> Now, Campbell and Lamb made their way to where William had said the incident had occurred, and sure enough, there was a three-foot-by-three-foot packing crate, which the odd smell seemed to be coming from. Upon opening the crate, they found the decomposing, mutilated body of Ellen Burry. And after being examined by several physicians, it was established that, surprise, surprise, it wasn't a suicide. Ellen had been strangled from behind with the rope that William had bought on the Monday, the 4th of February, before heading down the court for his entertainment, and had sliced down her abdomen with several slashes, one in particular being deep enough that her internal organs were exposed. So you can see why he was a bit worried about the Jack the Ripper connections. Yeah. Now, not only has she been strangled and slashed, her leg had been broken in two places when he was stuffing her into the crate to make her fit. That's a hell of a way to try and kill yourself. <laughs> I know, you've got to have some, you know, determination. And also inside the crate were a hymn book, a prayer book, the New Testament, some clothes, papers and other books. And upon the windowsill sat a knife, still bloody, with hair and skin still attached to it. On the floor, the rope also with hair attached, 
and the remnants of Ellen's clothing were found burned in the fireplace. So, like, buttons and things. Yeah. So, William was arranged for the murder of his wife, Ellen, on 18th March, 1889, where he entered the plea of not guilty. So, March 28th, his trial took place before Lord Young in the High Court of the Justice Theory. (laughs) 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 The hearing lasted 13 hours. It's one of the longest. Wow, that's quite long. That's what she said. (laughs) (laughs) Never. Um, multiple witnesses were called, including Ellen's sister Margaret, William's former employer in London, James Martin, um, the couple's ex-landlady, who had actually witnessed William abusing Ellen in the past, at one point like barging into the home during an argument to find him standing over her with a knife, threatening to kill her. Wow. So that was back in London in Whitechapel. And another witness was David Walker. Now, the defence leaned heavily on the idea that Ellen had strangled herself. It was also found, however, that the letter containing the offers of the of employment to the Duke Mill, they had been forged by William, made in an attempt to lure Ellen away from her home, up to Dundee. And at around 10 o'clock that night, the jury left the courtroom to confer and returned within 25 minutes. That's with quick. The, yeah. <laughs> So the foreman proclaimed that they found William Henry Burry to be guilty of the murder of Ellen Burry, but much to the surprise of the judge and the rest of those present, they recommended that he be shown mercy due to conflicting evidence. Judge Lord Young was having none of it, good on him, (laughs) (laughs) and refused to accept this as a formal verdict, so he sent them off again (laughs) to consider the case further and... As their call to consider their case further, as their call for mercy showed the jury's doubt over William's guilt. I mean, you can't really say, yeah, he's guilty, but don't convict him of it. Yeah. So it's suggested that the jury said this because Dundee was very anti-capital punishment. Right. They were well against it. And... It's assumed that the jury thought that by requesting mercy due to conflicting evidence that William wouldn't be executed. Mm. So at 10.40pm, the jury returned, this time with the unanimous verdict of guilty. And William Henry Burry was sentenced to hang by the neck until dead for the murder of his wife. (laughs) Now, I've mentioned Jack the Ripper. Uh And I have mentioned the fact that he lived in Whitechapel. At the same time that this was happening. Right. So the Jack the Ripper murders, the canonical five, you know, mm-hmm. um, they took place in 1888. Mm-hmm. And that's around the time that William was there. So he was definitely there between March and December. Because obviously that's when he'd married Ellen, um, met and married her. And obviously there's the job records and everything. Now, I mentioned that he had actually said to the officers that he was admitting to that he was worried he'd be mistaken for Jack the Ripper. But with the evidence... With the similarities between how the Ripper victims and Ellen had been discovered, like the slashing and everything... There was a lot in common. 
that along with obviously the I don't him <laughs> um, there was more than one occasion when Jack the Ripper was mentioned like one time they were down in a pub and the landlady of the pub was asking if they're like what's going on with Jack the Ripper Ellen had said oh he's quiet now while William just stood there silent and stony faced behind her and then of course there was the incident with David Wilkie's David Walker's flat um, and then of course there was the incident at David Walker's flat where he got a fright when he was asked to check for Jack the Ripper information and just buggered off <laughs> no I'm out get so, the fuck out of here <laughs> now because of his comments and and some graffiti that they actually found in the flat upon investigating the claims of the apparent suicide there was two messages written inside the building one on the wall one on the door at the bottom of the steps which read jack the ripper is at the back of this door and a second message on a wall reading jack the ripper is in this cellar now both messages were written in chalk and in a somewhat childish script uh, but it appeared to have been there for quite some time like it wasn't freshly written right okay so it wasn't a case of word getting out and someone yeah so the public were so convinced and the media there was an upcry that they thought we've caught jack the ripper yeah so inspector aberline who uh-huh. is the man from whitechapel who headed the jack the ripper investigation was yes. contacted uh-huh. and they actually did inquire into this and he was considered a suspect really? for a while right. okay. but eventually they decided that nah it wasn't him yeah but you know, it's an interesting overlap. Yeah. Like the murder stopped uh, like not long before he left yeah. and then he's all Ooh Yeah. <laughs> I'm not I'm not him. <laughs> like completely unprompted. So yeah. yeah, that's just a little bit of a side note there about the Jack the Ripper. He is um actually known as Bill. That was pretty good, I enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah, well I I haven't read any books on Jack the Ripper. Most of my knowledge is from looking at articles, online blogs, documentaries. Other uh, podcasts. Yes, uh-huh. And also, like, for my 30th, my best friend Katie, who's doing our logo for us just now, um, she took me on the Jack the Ripper tour. I'm so jealous. It was so cool, and I was, like, so giddy. <laughs> like, the creepy bitch I am. But it was, it was pretty cool, and, like, you found out it was pretty cool to go around London and some of the spots were the same and we started off in what was Mitre Square yeah. and the the visual that he gave us of the buildings and we found out these interesting historical facts like a lot of the buildings in London some of them have like fences on top and it was because London was so overcrowded that most schools had playgrounds on the roofs Yeah. and um, most people didn't have gardens that were on the roofs. Well, I mean, it's built the same way Edinburgh was built. Yeah. Like, Edinburgh had like, the, f- the world's first skyscrapers because yeah. they built up instead of out. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, so also, in I'd say the past kind of well, recent years, there's been a lot of articles like, oh, we've solved the Jack the Ripper case and people get excited. There's, yeah, like H.H. Holmes and yeah, stuff. Yeah, he was not. Because <laughs> one of the things they talked about in the tour I was on, that it was possible that it was a sailor and it was somebody American. 
Yeah. Because the times did match up with when some American boats were around. Yeah. So... I mean, it could have been anyone. Yeah, exactly. There's also a guy in Australia, I think, who yeah. could have been. There's also... There was a Polish guy who was a... Um, he was a barber or something, I think. He was apparently one. But I'd never heard of this guy before, which is pretty cool. Really yeah, like so that. he's just up the road in Dundee. Is he? Wow. Do you think he was Jack the Ripper? Honestly, no. I mean, I could see why people would think it. His wife is a sex worker, and it was sex workers that Jack the Ripper killed. Yes. The strangulation and the stabbing. Yeah. Although I think a lot of, well, I think Jack the Ripper's victims, it tended to be hit in the back of the head. Yeah. But, you know, still attacked from behind in some way. You can't see me, but I'm doing all the hand actions. <laughs> <laughs> um, and again, he was active when William Henry Burry was in Whitechapel. Yeah. Same area, so same time period, to... same company kept you know, in the brothels and the bars and yeah. stuff. So, I don't know. Like, it could just be... And the graffiti as well. It could be yeah. a, a local kid. Could have... One of them, uh, one of the things he told us on the tour was there was something written quite crudely about Jews. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's something along the Jews are the ones who won't be blamed for nothing. Yeah. That was written in chalk as well. Yeah. So, I mean, it could have been... Did they, did they not also prove that some of the letters... I think, was it the Dear Boss letter? Was that not, like, proven One of them to was be a fake. Fake? I'm sh- I, Well, you can, don't quote me on it. Um, it might have been the Dear Boss one. Yeah, I mean, all the details were in the paper, so anyone could have penned a letter saying, yeah, I did this, that, and the next thing. It was quite well, like, documented. Yeah, and I think with the graffiti in the Dundee flat... That could have been someone had heard him talking, heard his accent, found out he was from Whitechapel and thought, oh, I don't like him much. Trying to kind of point the finger at him. Yeah. I'll also say, though, Jack the Ripper was meant to have been quite short because he's said to have... There's some sources say he dressed as a woman and because he was so short he was able to get away with it. William Henry Burry was only 5'3 and really slight. Yeah. So, again, there's a thing there yeah uh, yeah so one of the things I noticed about the area when we were because it was quite a long walk like they took us to all the points um, it was dark and there is street lights now yeah back then no they, lights yeah they said there was no lights because I was always like how could somebody not have seen them but going even down like at some of the alleyways I couldn't even see like five feet in front of me it was that dark and that was with street lights. Yeah, back then there wasn't a lot of lights. It was gas lights yeah. and lanterns. Yeah. So, yeah. I also went into one of the bars that's still there. It's just one little floor. Um, it's quite tiny. And it was where one of the victims was last seen. Is it Dirty Dicks? No, it was <laughs> across from one of the more popular bars that people go to where the last victim was right. seen. There was, there's a bar just across the road from it. And um, we went in there and had That's pretty cool. some juice. Uh, juice. <laughs> juice. But I mean, overall, like it's been far too long and there's been so many different suspects and the evidence has been tainted. So yeah, I don't think there's really... Over time. There's not really any way to really look into yeah. if it could have been Bill the Ripper. 
I mean, everybody's fascinated because they never caught him, and there's so many stories around it. They, it's you think, oh, now technology's better with this stuff, forensics. But and it depends on how well the forensics were kept. Yeah, because one of them was a scarf. With a bit uh, of blood. Yeah, and they claimed to have tested it and it linked to some one of the people that was investigated, but it wasn't it soundproof, like sound enough yeah. for them. Wasn't strong enough yeah. evidence. So, yeah, that's my story for today. I like it. Thank you. Thank you. You done very well considering Kez was scratching the door. And like, <laughs> like what's his chops for the shining? Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah, that's him. Here's Kez. <laughs> so it's Jade's turn. My turn, two seconds. Twizzler break. Yep, just uh, lubricate ye old vocal cords. I'm going to fill up. <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, I am going to talk about something I only recently found out about, the Gorbals Vampire. Glug, 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 glug. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm going to give you a bit of a background into the Gorbals, which is in Glasgow. The Gorbals was founded in 1872. It was actually just a street. Um, it was built around a very fancy Russian-style fountain. When you mention the Gorbals to a lot of people, they think of slums and it being quite a bad and rough area still. Yeah. And throughout history. But, at, like, like I said, it did start out as a small village. It was just one street. But it was considered fashionable to live there. Oh, her times have changed. <laughs> yeah. The problem was it wasn't designed or set up to house the amount of people that were living in that area that covered, like, 2% of Glasgow. In 1931, there was actually 85,000 people living there and it became overwhelmed by the population like the rest of Glasgow. So we fast forward to the about 20 years to the 1950s. Uh, there was dying industries and the war recovery left the city in a dark period and everybody was really badly affected by this the famous sandstone buildings they were black with soot the smog basically dimmed the cityscape you couldn't see very far in front of you there was a lack of housing after world war Two because they stopped building housing also the blitz a lot of yeah. places in glasgow yeah were there was only seven houses in clyde bank left on damaged everything else had either been damaged yeah, or my, completely yeah my my family from that area um yeah so they were recovering from all this stuff that was happening there was glasgow had quite a rich history for shipbuilding all these things and also after world war Two, there was a large amount of men died yeah i mean so scotland's population of men dropped so a lot of like all these um, industries were dying and also that was the baby boom so there was lots of babies being born and it caused a housing crisis which also contributed to the overcrowding area yeah my mum she's from Mary Hill area they had a tenement and it was one room there was her and her two sisters and they slept in the kitchen mm -hmm. and 
my grandparents slept in a pull-out bed in the living room. And that's... They were quite a small family. Yeah. There, there's much bigger families sharing the same amount of space. So, and that's the sort of thing you'd equate with Victorian era. Yeah. So a lot of these people, like, my mum even talks, I don't even think... I mean, think they didn't even have a bathroom probably not if anything it would have been a shared one or an outhouse yeah the back. yeah because they still have like when i first moved i lived in the west end and there was a door and that was an that was like their first indoor toilets but it was in the close of the flat yeah so shared. everybody shared it so yeah this was actually something i was going to mention um the solution was these tenements that i was talking about they threw them up as quick as possible, to house as many people as possible. There was families sharing one bedroom, up to eight people sharing one bedroom. They shared a tap and a toilet with the rest of the building, which could be up to 40 people. And this obviously started uh, a decline in the living conditions. The sewage was dumped into the streets. It was rat-infested. There was no gardens or play areas. And because of that, this is... The Gorbals soon became the most deprived area in Europe. There was a huge amount of poverty. There was gangs and sectarian violence. The area became notorious. And it's starting to get better. There, there's a lot of initiatives and after the Commonwealth, cause, because that was in that area, there's loads of, like, the built new apartments and houses that try to regenerate and kind of gentrify the area. Even though... It was thought of as a fearful place for people who lived there. It wasn't. It, they had community spirit. It was really important to them. The kids all played in the street all day. Uh, they'd build dens, they'd make up fantasies, they'd run about, they'd do whatever they could with what little they had. So, on to the southern necropolis. That Ooh. was... Yeah, it sounds fancy. It's the one place... These kids um, had to escape to was the Southern Necropolis, which is a massive cemetery in Glasgow. Sounds like my kind of playground. It, it's really beautiful. That it's... sounded really dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll maybe take you up there one night. Uh, Billy Connolly is quoted as saying that uh, Glasgow treats its living like dirt and the dead, like, I can't remember the exact quote, but this graveyard, some of the headstones, the tombs, they're absolutely beautiful. Side um, note, speaking of Billy Connolly and the cemeteries, he apparently lost his virginity in the Western Cemetery in Arborough. Yeah, I heard. Uh, also, my mum, completely unrelated, but she used to serve in fish and chips out of van. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was doing uh, my family research and uh, my family, when they first came to Glasgow, they lived on the same street. Uh, and around the same time, but I don't know because I don't know them. Uh, yeah, so the Southern Necropolis was the one place in the Gorbals that the kids had to escape. Kind of not unlike when your kids and you run into the forest and you play and run about. This was their forest, even though it was a graveyard. <laughs> it was vastly different to its surrounding areas. Um, it was a large green space. It covered a wide area of the city and... It's the oldest graveyard in the city as well. It was beautiful and sprawling. It was filled with beautiful and ornate gravestones and statues and tombs. And it was a municipal cemetery. And it was also necessary because the city was so overcrowded. They were running out of space to bury their people. Uh, 
the entrance to this, you, you pass it all the time and they went to town. It's a beautiful gothic style entrance that was also once a gatehouse. So during the 1950s, um, loads of the kids in the area, they would play in the necropolis as an escape and a way to act out their imaginations and kind of get away from like their lives because they weren't, they were living in like poverty. Yeah, so um, th- this um, cemetery, some of the famous residents are Thomas Lipton, the tea merchant. Um, mm. That's quite a popular tea, Lipton's. Yeah, In America, tea. yeah. Uh, and it's shit. It's rank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, um, America. <laughs> yeah, your tea's shite. <laughs> um, Alexander Greek Thompson, who is a very famous architect. Yeah, I think he built a church up in the Highlands, actually. Yeah, he built loads. Yeah, and um, the church was used as a refuge when the clearances were going on and you can still oh, see really? messages scratched into the glass panes on uh, the windows oh, of wow. the survivors. That's pretty cool. If it was him. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't I'll need to look in, I don't know the dates he was active. Um yeah, so to, him, the architect, there's also a monument, um is it Thomas Pinkerton who founded Pinkerton's detective agency? Um, he they from, are not good guys. Yeah, well, he was from Glasgow and there is a it's monument there to him. Kind of explains it if he was a VG. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a second, what? <laughs> What's wrong with being Glaswegian? No, it's just, you know. What? Rough. <laughs> really? Do I scare you? Yes. Oh. Well. Everyone scares me. <laughs> <laughs> so on the 23rd of September 1954... Children, with their fertile imaginations, started telling stories of this vampire. It was a beast that was seven feet tall, had blood-red eyes and iron teeth. This alleged vampire was apparently accused of killing two young boys and eating them. Uh, The police and media claimed to have no knowledge of these missing boys or claims of a vampire, but the children, like children are, they had other plans to let their imaginations run wild and create tales and theories and a plan. Ooh. So, on the 23rd of September 1954, 200 children between 4 and 14 who had been getting in a frenzy all day, writing notes to each other, making a plan, in their excitement, they went to the Necropolis Cemetery looking for a vampire with iron teeth that was blamed for killing these boys. The back of the cemetery, uh, it was all factories, the backdrop, um, and steelworks that would light up and flicker and create this even more eerie atmosphere. So the boys, they, they, they were right in the thick of it. They thought they thought they were going to war. Um, kill some vampires. Yeah, these boys were convinced they were going to kill and hunt a vampire. Um, Tam Smith, one of the boys present, he was quoted as saying, the red light and the smoke would flare up and make all the gravestones leap. You could see figures walking about at the back, all light lit up in red. Another boy, Ronnie Sanderson, said, it all started in the playground. The word was, there was a vampire and everyone was going to head out there after school. At three o'clock, the school emptied. Uh, Everyone made a beeline for it. We sat there for ages in the wall, waiting and waiting. I wouldn't go in because it was a big scary, bit scary for me. 
Oh, I hate pussy. We lamb. <laughs> <laughs> I think somebody saw someone wandering about and the cry went up. There's a vampire and that was it. That was word to get off that wall quick and get away from it. I just remember scampering home to my mother. What's the matter with you? I've seen a vampire and I got a clout round the ear for my trouble. I didn't really know what a vampire was. And a clout <laughs> round the ear is getting walloped for your maw. <laughs> Clipped um, around the ear. So obviously this cemetery was full of children screaming and running about. So somebody called the police. They responded. Um, and PC Alex DeProse responded. He described it as overflowing with children, armed with knives and stakes. Attempt to move them failed. And it went on for hours until the rain started. And everybody went, fuck it, let's go home. I'm not getting wet for a vampire. <laughs> but they did return for the next two nights. <clears throat> uh, the next day in school, the pupils were lectured by their teachers um, to try and put them off from doing this again. That There was no missing children. And it was just an urban myth and mass hysteria. The story that appeared in lo- the local press, it gained coverage worldwide. Um, an unlikely alliance of Christians, teachers and communists banded together and blamed these imports of American comics at the time. Uh, the suggestion that nasty American comic books were corrupting young children led to this alliance. So this is like the original video nasty, it's the comic book nasty. Yeah, and actually there's something interesting here. Um, it was comics like Tales from the Crypt and The Vault of Horror um, that caused people to cry out for a ban in these. Um, it actually even reached Parliament and a law was passed, Children and Young Persons Harmful Publications Act. That was passed in 1995 and it actually still stands. So it's Kind of that was the beginning of like censorship, I guess. Yeah. And what is legal to sell to a child and what is not. The media coverage, that caused mass panic and got these children excited even more. But some people decided to look into where it came from. Uh, Some of the theories why this started uh, were, um, it was an American comic book called The Vampire with the Iron Teeth. So they weren't exactly original. Yeah, no, they weren't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was considered quite graphic and gruesome for the time. Uh, there, another thing to be blamed possibly was a passage in the Bible. Daniel, no, <laughs> I know, shock, horror. Those <laughs> hypocritical, pesky Christians, badmouthing Christianity. Because I'm going to get in trouble. Yeah, we will just badmouth everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he all is. Yeah. So in Daniel seven seven, behold. A f- Fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. Another uh, thing that it was possibly blamed on was Jenny with the iron teeth, um, who was an old murderous woman who is said to haunt Glasgow Green in the early 19th century. She was actually a wee old lady that used to go for a walk in the, the cemetery for peace and quiet, with her two cats and a basket. Sounds like me. Yeah, she was quite <laughs> old and short. Uh, and they thought this is where this other legend, uh, Jenny with Iron Teeth, came from because it was this wee woman just going for some peace and quiet. Uh, on September the 26th, 1954, the Sunday Mail newspaper ran the following story, Vampire with Iron Teeth is Dead. 
the vampire with iron teeth is dead. The vampire, which was supposed to be running amok in Glasgow's southern necropolis on Thursday after devouring two little boys, started children armed with penknives, sticks and stones on a mammoth hunt. It is not like a newspaper to sensationalise. Oh no, and oh. was this the sun, did you say? No. Oh no, it's, oh, it's oh, the mail. No, it's, it's the mail. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> they swarmed over the seven foot high wall and started searching the cemetery. The rumours swept through the, the Hutchison town, district of Glasgow, with amazing speed. The police were called out, as I said. Eventually this all died down and basically everybody... Went back to normal, and that or was as it. as normal as you can be for yeah. Glasgow. <laughs> yeah, well, from the gargoyles, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it, it's quite interesting. I'd, I'd never heard. The reason why I decided to do this, I was getting a taxi into town and going through the gargoyles, and I seen quite a cool, like, um, there was graffiti, and it was the gargoyles vampire. Oh, wow. It was pretty cool. So I was like, oh, I've never heard of that, and I decided to look into it. No, oh, I hadn't heard of that either, and I'm pretty up on my weird vampire stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually, um, it's quite cool and it's interesting to see, like, how the influence... Of in, the media. Yeah, and this whole censorship thing, like, like in current times, when you think about Marilyn Manson, that being blamed for people. Or Harry Potter and Yoga being blamed for demonic possession. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know much about Harry Potter. What? I've, uh, I've never read the books. Get out. No, I don't like Harry Potter. I'm going home. What? I'm going home. I will say this. I've seen... I've not seen all the films because I worked in the cinema when I was at uni. So did I. So <laughs> I got so fed up of seeing the same... Because you had to go and check every minute. Yeah. So I've seen the same point, like, over a hundred times. But I have watched some of them. They weren't bad. And then, because I was just in Florida, um, I went to The Wizarding World of Harry Potter... And that was pretty cool. I actually got really into it. Right, well, we're going to have to and like diag- watch the films. Yeah, Diagon Alley was pretty cool. It was just awesome. They had uh, King's Cross. They had the night bus. It was And the rides were awesome. The Harry Potter rides were possibly my favourites. Although they did make me very motion sick. I'm not jealous at all. Sorry. Yeah, you can also find there's actually a comic book... Um, about this, the Gorbals Vampire. Um, it's called The Tales of the Gorbals Vampire. 14 original stories inspired by the legend of the Gorbals Vampire. Um, I don't know who it's by. Um, but yeah, you should, if you can find it, try it. Uh, yeah. So that's my story. I'm sorry. It wasn't, it was really hard to find out lots of information on it. No, it was good. I, it was fun. Yeah. It, I mean, it wasn't like one of these stories where you're like, oh, it is a vampire. It's quite clearly not a vampire. Yeah, like there's it's the just... Highgate Cemetery vampire and stuff, yeah. which has been spoke about a lot. Yeah, and from this, it just seems like... It was actually quite disappointing, because I was like, oh, there's this vampire, but it's not. It's just some kids with... Wild imaginations. Yeah, running riot around town. Oh, well. <laughs> Sorry if you're disappointed. But... Well, you came back. I'm liking getting the history of Glasgow, because I can see all the chorus... Like the corresponding things with Edinburgh like you were saying there was nowhere to bury the dead it's like in Greyfriars churchyard in Edinburgh the bodies are buried and then there's earth on top and then there's another body and then yeah. earth and it's just hills and like because bones still come up out the ground I wonder what and I actually I was thinking too much and I thought well 
there's going to be time when you're completely forgotten. Nobody's going to remember you. Like, your great-great-great-grandchildren might not even know you exist. So what happens with your grave? Meh. Do they just dump another body on top of you? Because I don't like sharing. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, I really enjoyed that one. Thank you. Um, it's a bit different. Again, um, with the folklore type stuff. Yeah. So that's quite fun. And actually, my next one is going to be kind of similar, based in cemeteries. Yeah. <laughs> I'm noticing a theme. <laughs> yeah. Well, my next four are actually a series. Ooh. <laughs> um, and they're going to be quite long, because okay. I've been busting my ass researching them. Yeah, oh, that's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, well, I hope. So yeah, that's our second podcast. Thanks for coming back. Thank you to everybody that listened to our first post. First, first podcast. Uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. Spread the word. I hope you like us. You can find us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram as... Giggle Slits, yep. Um, got a Facebook group, um, it's Slits and Giggles podcast, so find us there as well. Yeah, and like I said at the beginning, we are on SoundCloud and Podbean, and hopefully by the time this comes out, that it will be verified on Spotify and iTunes, and you can listen there, because I think they're the most popular ones that people listen through. Yeah, I see yeah. so. Yeah, I hope yous all have a good few weeks. The next time, I will just be back from Barcelona. And I will be, at most, back from Arbos. <laughs> right. None of this highfalutin holidays nonsense. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right, so we will love you and leave you. Good night and bye. I'm just going to leave you. No yeah. loving from me. Oh. <laughs> bye. Bye.